As a representative of the Office of the President, <laughs> I have a number of edicts and declarations and proclamations today. Um, I won't go into what they will be, but I have to make them very quickly before you pull me back down from here. But anyway, that's fine. Uh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in the mid-1500s, there was a, <clears throat> a student in uh, Paris at a university who wrote a tract. I'm losing my voice already. I just got started. Who wrote a tract called The Politics of Obedience. And in it, he talked about how if the, if the masses of people support a government or a, or a king and put them into power, expecting something great to happen, what happens is over time that power shifts away from the people who gave it and it returns to the person who's in charge and they in turn misuse the people who gave the power. He called it the politics of obedience. That's an interesting thing. The things that we choose to obey eventually come to control us. The things that we choose to obey eventually come to control us. I want to read you a, a, a parable that you know, and it's from Luke chapter 10 if you want to look at it. If not, just listen to me because I'm going to read it for you. And my thanks to, um, to uh, Andrew who loaned me his Bible today. I didn't even bring a Bible. That's how pitiful I am. So we want to read from Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man is go uh, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had to go for our regular physical. We're at that age where we have to have physicals done. And uh, so to have a physical, you have to have blood taken. So we uh, don't want to take a lot of time off work because, of course, I'm a dedicated employee. So what I did was we both went early in the morning 7.30, knowing the lab opens at 8 o'clock, we go at 7.30. We get up, drive, go to the lab, get there early. I turn the corner down the narrow hallway to where the lab is, and there's always, already a lineup of people, about half a dozen people. So already my, my, my day is in trouble, right? So I'm standing there, and, and everything's quiet. Everybody's just standing very politely. And my wife's talking to me, and she says, I don't know what she said, so I said, 
What'd you say? And she says, no, don't do that. Anyway, that was fun. But the reason that we were there was to have some blood taken. And as I stood there, I was very impatient. I have half an hour to kill. I'm checking my phone. I'm standing there. I'm talking to my wife. We ran out of things to talk about. What else do I do, right? So we're there for a while. And then I look up, and at the front of the line, what has happened is people have lined up along the wall, like civilized people do, but there was one guy who's standing over, kind of on the other side of the door. And I'm thinking, new people who come up, they'll stand behind him, and they'll be closer to the door. So I'm, I'm worried about this. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? If somebody comes up and they go, and they essentially butt in, what am I going to do? And I really puzzled over that. But anyway, people were pretty, pretty nice. And they came and got in line behind me like they were supposed to. And it was all of us great until the elevator opened and my worst fears were realized. Off of the elevator came an old person with a walker. Now, what do you do when you're jealously guarding your place in line and a person with a walker gets off the elevator? I thought about it. As he was coming off with the elevator, off the, with the walker, like this. You know how those people do that. As he was coming off the elevator, I'm thinking, I should just say, come in front of me. And I thought, no, the people behind me, they won't appreciate that. But it is an elderly person, they'll understand. Then I thought, no, I don't really want him in front of me anyway, because I don't want to be late for work, right? Is this just me? Can you understand my thought process here? So I'm thinking, the good news is, by the time I figured out what I should do, he was already at the back of the line, so that was good. But here's what happened. He wheeled his walker around, and it was a chair. Problem solved. He was able to sit down. So I didn't, my guilt was completely sated. I was fine at that point, and I didn't think any more about him until later. Isn't it interesting? The simplest thing, the simplest thing that's courteous and, and civilized and right that certainly, of all things, a Christian should be able to do this. And I wrestled with whether, whether or not to let an old, crippled person ahead of me in line so I could save 10 minutes. Isn't that awful? The things that we choose to obey, myself, my time, become the things that control us. This man comes to Jesus one day. And he's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. And he says, teacher... I have a question for you. And then he asks the big one, you know, what can I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to have life that lasts and has meaning and is big and full and eternal? And Jesus says, what's the law say? You're an expert. And the man gives a really wonderful quote. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, from, from Deuteronomy and then from Leviticus about loving your neighbor as yourself. But Scripture says that he was testing Jesus. He was testing Jesus. Here's a guy who knows the law, who's a good person, who probably observes it, who's got it all figured out in one sense, and yet he's trying to manipulate it because something's wrong. If it was me, I think that I might just have Jesus say, that's a good answer. There, go and do it. But this legal person wants to pursue it a little bit more. I think he wants to take uh, some of Jesus' answer and kind of strain it out and look for things to criticize about it. He just can't leave it at that. 
So he, he needs to ask another question. So he asks another question. He says, okay, who's my neighbor? Scripture says that he's trying to justify himself. Jesus understood that he was trying to justify himself. You know, if we didn't have to justify what we do to ourselves, life would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? If this man didn't have to justify his life somehow and push this question further, we wouldn't even have this parable. But he needed to find a reason to give an excuse for himself because he liked his own goodness. He wanted to remain in his own goodness. Who's my neighbor, he says. Who's your neighbor? You, you've all have heard this story before, right? You, every one of you know this story. Who's your neighbor? When I, when I resigned as a pastor, uh, I needed to have a job. And Tyndale wasn't hiring at that point. So my brother-in-law uh, has furniture stores, and he had a large warehouse. And I went and worked for him, ran a machine there, and, and carried furniture around. And that's not a good thing to do when you've been pastoring for 12 years and gaining weight. That's not a good thing. Well, maybe it is a good thing to do, because I lost quite a bit of weight. But it was hard work. And as I was working one day, uh, there was this guy with me. He was a young guy, about 25 years old or so. And he says to me, what did you do before you came here? And I said, do you really want to know? He said, yeah. Why? Were you a stripper? And I said, no, no. Do I look like a stripper? No, I didn't do that. So I said, well, I was a minister. And he said, oh, really? Oh, that's cool. You know? And it, from then on, I became Father Bry. So that was kind of, kind of special. But the very next day when I came into work, my supervisor had heard. And he turned his chair around and said, come here. And I wandered over, and he said, uh, I hear you're a minister. I said, yeah. And he said, a, a real one? I said, yeah, I can marry you or bury you or whatever. And he said, I'm an atheist. And he was very proud of it. So I said, OK. And uh, my wife's a psychic. OK. And uh, he, we talked for a little bit. And I thought, here we go. This is going to be hard work. But we continued to work together. And time went on. King Christmas time. And the boys had a Christmas party. And they invited Father Bry, which was kind of nice. So they said, you know, you want to come? We're going to have a Christmas party outside of work and that sort of thing. So I said, OK. And they said, uh, it's on such and such a date. And that was OK. And I said, where is it? And they said, at Hooters in Whitby. So I said, I may have to run this by my wife. So <laughs> I, I did that. And she was, she was on board. So I went to the boys' um, Christmas party. Um, I've never been to a Christmas party like this. I'm a preacher's kid. My mom and dad are Methodist, and uh, I'm Methodist. They, uh, if, you, if they're at a wedding and you sit a bottle of wine on their table, they turn inside out because that's awful stuff. And I went in, and I sat down, and the beer flowed, and the boys got more bleary-eyed as we went along. But I enjoyed myself. One of them had a girlfriend, and she came late. She never did really come to the table and sit with us. She kind of hung at the bar, talking to some people. She seemed pretty sad. Another girl came later on. She'd been drinking all day. She sat down across from me. And uh, we chatted for a while. She was quite talkative. And 
I learned that they were going to a strip club after Hooters, and uh, she, she suggested that she could get me a lap dance there, and all the guys kind of said, oh, no, no, I don't think you want that, and they were, at least they were uncomfortable. And as I sat there, my heart broke for these hurting people. Do you understand what a neighbor is? It's not just about, oh, this is comfy, this is Tyndale. Here's our church friends. Here, this is, this is all nice. What about the real world? What about people? There I was, uncomfortable. But I felt pretty good because I was uncomfortable for Jesus. And I'm not a superstar. I wrestled with it. But I did it. As time went on, the atheist guy, I found out that his mother-in-law had cancer, brain cancer. And I would ask him regularly, you know, how's she doing? I'll pray for her. The day that she died, he called me. And he said, I've been talking to my family and told them you're a minister and told them how great you are. And uh, they'd like you to be the MC at her funeral. So I did that. And he went on to say about, and please understand why I'm saying this, but he, he talked about how he admired me because of who I was in one sense or another. And then he went on to say, you're the only person that cared about my mother-in-law. And I just was blown away. It was really good for me because I had left ministry to minister outside of the walls, and that was a good thing for me to experience. You're, you're here this morning, you've heard this parable, right? You know this parable. And there's all way, different ways of thinking about it. But I, what I want you to hear this morning is this, I don't believe, it, this isn't just a parable about religious elitism. It's not just a parable about intolerance. It's not a parable just about helping the poor or the hungry or the needy. It's not even a parable really about what a neighbor is. There's something more. Look at the end of the story and how it all resolves when Jesus brings it all together. We learn who a neighbor is. What we learn is the neighbor isn't the person in need. I'm the neighbor. It's up to me to be a neighbor. Wherever I am, I am a neighbor to that person who is with me. We are neighbors to whoever we are around. And then he says, you know what else a neighbor is? A neighbor is defined by how merciful they are. A neighbor is someone who has mercy. Wherever you are, there's a person of mercy there called a neighbor. Mercy is on whatever road you're on. It's on whatever sidewalk you're on. It's in whatever hallway you're in. Mercy is wherever you are, at work, or at school, or at home, or, or in the store. Mercy is being like Jesus wherever we are. So do you have mercy in your life? I'm taking you someplace on purpose here. Do you have mercy in your life? Are you a person of mercy? Now, I know we have taxes, and we have a social safety net to take care of people, but are you a person of mercy? And we had a worship leader here who said, you know, sometimes worship gets too complicated. 
Do we really need slick worship services and amazing enlightening sermons and Christian media? Do we really need Christian movements and Christian laws and Christian politicians and Christian theme parts? What about mercy? Do they give mercy? Sometimes as Christians, we try to find easy solutions and throw those solutions at the problem. We would much rather give money to a problem than be merciful to it. We would much rather um, take a trip and help somebody than actually have mercy. We would much rather um, obey what is easy and comfortable than actually have mercy. So I want you to leave this place this morning being merciful. That's, that's what I would like you to do. So will everybody do that? No, you don't have to raise your hands. One person, thank you. <laughs> How do you be merciful? How do you do that? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, there's a guy, he was laying along the road and he needed help. That's an easy one. What's it mean to be a person of faith who's also merciful? What if we started with smiling more? Like, what if we started with smiling more? Thank you. What if we held a door for somebody and didn't expect them to say thank you? What if we did that? What if, what if we um, didn't gossip? I mean, really didn't gossip. What if we actually did get to know our neighbors, the people on our street? And where are they at? What do they need? How about giving real money where it's needed, even if there's no receipt? How about getting to know somebody who's sick or poor or elderly and helping them? How about giving your coworker the benefit of the doubt? What if we spent less time listening to worship music in our iPod and just spent more time listening? What if we... How many pastors are here? What if we skipped the occasional church service and ran in the Terry Fox run or actually helped that shut-in get groceries? Would that be okay? Just throwing it out there. What about praying for our enemies? Not in theory... When you have an enemy, pray for them. What about praying every time you hear a siren for whoever that person is? What about being a friend to somebody who's not at all like you? I'm sure many of you would have stories where you've done that. What if you had to learn to love somebody? Scott and I often think about this. Well, we hope that through this building process, that there are builders and professionals that are involved with that who sense that there's something different about Tyndale and about the people here. What about sacrificing instead of justifying? What if we obeyed mercy instead of obeying our own need to stay out of the way, to be quiet, to be lazy, to be comfortable? This all sounds very you know, kind of quasi-religious, emergent, 
you know, I'm sure that lots of people would wonder about a, a message about doing practical things. But I want you to understand that this parable is in the context of that big question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, love God with everything you have and have mercy on your neighbor. That's the package that we're given. Mercy is something that doesn't uh, stand afar away. Mercy is something that comes close, like Jesus did. When it comes to the politics of obedience, I would much rather be obedient to mercy than to what Brian wants. I'd much rather be merciful than comfortable. I'd much rather be merciful than who I want to be. Because Jesus is something much more. Sir, do you have anything more? Did you want me to close? Let's pray. Father, we're in this place this morning because you have graced us and blessed us, because you've been merciful. We know that as human beings, as Christians, we wrestle sometimes with the things that we want to do as opposed to the things that you want us to do. I just hope that, and I pray that through these words that we look at ourselves, that we'll be people who choose mercy and grace and love and leave ourselves aside. Help us to be neighbors. Help us to honor you. I pray that you'll go with us now and may you be honored in our living. I pray in Jesus' name.